Welcome back, campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Finn Wolfhard. Thank you, Caitlin. You know, I'm really stepping into this new identity and fully embracing my true self. (laughs) In case you're like, what the fuck was she talking about? Make sure you go to TikTok or Instagram and check out one of the most recent videos posted by our friends over at Mostly Horror. We had an awesome conversation with them about all kinds of stuff. I don't even remember now. What did we talk about? Aubrey Plaza. Mm, Who would play us in the movie of, like, if we got murdered. Mm -hmm. We talked about aliens. We talked about our show. Our first. Our first experience with horror. Yes. Steve and Sean, the hosts of Mostly Horror, are amazing. So if you guys are looking for another podcast to get into, we definitely recommend checking them out. Mm -hmm. And apparently people in the comments of one of our videos thought that I look like Finn Wolfhard. So let us know what you think. Hey, nobody made the connection of me and a sewer rat. Mm. So, yeah. (laughs) So. (laughs) You're just waiting for the world to see you for your true self. (sighs) My husband did with no context. So I knew that he saw the TikTok video, Mm -hmm. sent me a picture of Finn Wolfhard and said, nice haircut, babe. So. There you have it. Well, at least you noticed your haircut. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Also, Stranger Things, get on it. We're ready for that next season. At this point, I don't even know who's in that show or who's still alive. Anywho, we aren't going to take up your time with chit chat today because we've got a ridiculous amount of information to spill. Real fast, if you are just tuning in, this is part two of our coverage on the American serial killer, and human trash heap piece of shit Mm -hmm. that is Israel Keys. So make sure you listen to part one first if you haven't already. Our main source for both episodes is the book American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan. And all our other resources will be linked in the show notes. Also, maybe don't listen to this particular story if you are currently on a hiking trail by yourself. Alrighty then, here we go. Lights out, campers. Last week, we left off by giving you guys the rundown of Israel Keyes' unconventional, off-the-grid upbringing in a fundamentalist household and concluded with a grim incident where his sadistic urges escalated to the abduction and assault of a teenage girl when he was around 18 years old. Now that we have our Falcon's eye view of his origin story, it's unsurprising that everything about Israel's psychological development is agreed by experts to be a textbook example of a budding sadist and psychopath. On the surface, in their early stages, Israel's interests may have been perfectly fine had they not escalated. For example, from age six, he was extremely interested in guns, a questionable hobby for a six-year-old, but not that shocking when you consider his family's lifestyle and their reliance on hunting for food, until that interest 
escalated to adolescent Israel breaking into homes to steal guns and hoard them. His interest in hunting might also have been completely fine, but again, it rapidly escalated to Israel shooting a neighbor's dog in front of his friend to watch that friend's reaction, and talking about how much he enjoyed skinning deer alive, and also torturing a cat belonging to the Keyes family to death, again, while in the presence of other people so that he could enjoy their horrified reactions. From every angle, Israel Keyes was experimenting with controlling and killing living things for pure pleasure. As all of this was occurring, it is impossible for us to over-exaggerate the preoccupation and obsession that Israel Keyes as a child had with hunting. When he was 15, Israel left his family's cabin and started building his own cabin a mile away so that he could live there alone and devote every waking moment to becoming a master hunter. He mostly hunted deer, which was actually illegal where they lived, but he butchered them himself and gave them to his family. The more time Israel spent in the woods, the more he learned the importance of patience and waiting. He trained himself to be able to sit motionless for hours and become an expert at camouflaging himself and heightening his senses until he could actually smell a distant animal approaching. No. Whew. That's, now knowing what we know, it comes across as so sinister. If he was somebody on the show alone, which I, I fucking love that show, and somebody could smell an animal approaching you'd be like oh shit they're gonna make it to the end they're gonna win this thing not in this case no i truly just imagine being on a hike and slowly averting my gaze to the side and making eye contact with this fucker oh my god that is the stuff of nightmares hard no and again this is just part of that it would have been fine but but Not under these circumstances. But yet he persisted. (laughs) (laughs) He is that TikTok account of the guy that just stitches horrible things running across a football field with a giant red flag. Ah, yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That is Israel Keys. Yes. A giant red flag. And as he was out doing this, He noticed how easy it was becoming for him to be invisible to not just animals, but people as well. Sometimes he would be in their presence, silent and unmoving for hours, completely undetected, and he would fantasize about how easy it would be to make someone disappear into thin air. Around this time, Israel got in trouble for shoplifting and was forced to leave his cabin and move back in with his parents and siblings. But after the taste of freedom he'd experienced, this only escalated his desire to get away from his parents' grueling way of life and oppressive beliefs. He told them he was an atheist, and while his mother Heidi was devastated to learn this, Israel felt she was able to see past it and love him anyways. But his father Jeff essentially disowned him. On top of this, when Israel's parents found out that he had been secretly dating his boss's daughter from his construction job, They forbade him from having any contact with her besides writing her letters, and he obeyed them. But his resentment towards them continued to grow. 
He would write to his girlfriend and say that his mother relied on him as a caregiver of his siblings too much, but she also wanted to have absolute control over him. It was this time that the Keyes family decided to leave Colville and move to Oregon, which now brings us back to that canon incident for Israel, the moment he decided to stop staying hidden in the woods. It's a tad hypocritical too, don't you think, that they were so fine with Israel illegally hunting deer, poaching, I think that's the word for it, but he got busted for shoplifting and they were like, that's it, you're moving back into our tiny cabin. You know, it just, and they were so anti-government and anti-establishment. Right. It, It seems like it's less to do with the fact that what he was doing was actually illegal and more that they were just pissed that they didn't know he was doing it and that it was something he was doing outside of their control yes yes. like it was no longer something that they benefited from yes yeah absolutely so just a (laughs) interesting when israel was around 18 years old There was one particular beach the Keyes family went to often along the Deschutes River in Oregon. The beach itself was remote, with pretty isolated restroom areas. And these restrooms were what gave Israel an idea that he would eventually carry out after several years of meticulous planning. One afternoon late in the summer of 1996, Keyes arrived at the beach dressed in his swim trunks and situated himself in a concealed spot in some trees alongside the river. As dusk started to fall and the crowd of beachgoers and inner tubers thinned out, a group of about four or five teenagers came floating by, and one girl was straggling a bit behind the rest of her friends. Swiftly and silently, Keyes stepped out from behind some bushes and grabbed her from the river. He led her to one of the small, dirty bathrooms, pushed her face down over the closed lid of the toilet, and tightly tied her neck with a rope to a handicap bar along the wall. He raped her. His next planned move was to kill her and dispose of her body in the large concrete waste tank that got emptied once a year by the park service, and by then he knew there would be hardly anything of her left. Keyes had fantasized intensely about this moment, his very first kill. The absolute power, the terror, and the pain and control that he could revel in. But this young woman gave him none of those things he wanted. She was incredibly calm and spoke to Israel like they were old friends. She told him that he was good-looking. He didn't need to go to all this trouble. She herself would absolutely have gone out with a guy like him. What he was doing now really wasn't a big deal, she said. He could let her go, and she wouldn't tell anybody. Keyes was so unnerved by her composure that after he raped her, he put her back in her inner tube and pushed her back out into the river. Keyes would later tell detectives that from the moment he let her tube go, he would regret it forever. That sometimes when I read things, even though I know what is coming up, I get a dread chill and that gets me every time because not that 
he was ashamed of what he had done. Not that he wished he had made a different decision and his entire life could have been different. But no, he regretted not killing her forever. And that was his only regret in that whole fucked up evil act. Like, (laughs) again, he yoinked her from the river. Up a thousand percent sinister yoink. He did all that sinister shit. Uh huh. He walked her back, placed her in the tube, Uh -uh. and let her go like some merciful act. When it was this girl that survived, like she. Oh, such a badass. Yeah. Uh, So fucking smart. So strong. You go from having the best day of your life in a split second to the absolute worst. And we've been on those rivers. That's terrifying. Not that exact river, but like similar type where you get in a tube with a group of friends and sometimes you kind of get separated because you went around a curve or like you got stuck in a shallow part. But you all catch back up to each other after like 30 seconds. I would turn that water brown so fucking quick Mm -hmm. if somebody came and snatched me. Uh, My God. Like, wherever she is, I pray she is doing amazing, but holy fuck. Yeah, I will never go on a kayaking trip. Without having myself handcuffed to the inner tube of everyone else a large safe man on one side a large safe man on the other side this quickly sounding one bad. on the side one on the <laughs> other side one in front one in the back mm-hmm. diagonal mm-hmm. we're hitting all the corners amen sister suffragette we're sticking together <laughs> safety circle my feministness goes out the window <laughs> any safe men that look like a lumberjack come on over this way ring around yeah try yoinking one of our brother-in-laws seriously even our husbands out of the river seriously but yeah that is fucking That's, horrifying no. yeah uh, what a i piece wonder of shit. if her friends were just like thought she was just straggling even further behind yeah i mean again plenty of times where we've been in a similar situation and there's that person that always like gets their canoe turned around mm-hmm. and like stops to try to catch a turtle and then you're like oh they're just gonna catch up with us in a minute or you two know what? i think we're good mm-hmm. i think josh would get taken yeah, yeah. he's the straggler of our group he is the one that just likes to go on little missions like little side quests and not tell anybody well he did find a really nice watch, though, once. Oh, did he? Diving to the bottom of I the lake. I was thinking of the baby turtle. Mm, he has found a turtle. Somebody else found a GoPro. Maybe it was all Josh. It was probably all Josh. I the don't hell? know. Little yeah. metal detector. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anywho's. Oh, gosh. Don't get yoinked in the river, guys. No. In the months following this attack, Keyes was convinced the police were going to kick down his door. But it was like nothing ever happened. The next year, the Keyes family moved again all the way across the country to New York, and then again the following year to Maine. Fucking traveling circus. I mean, really. Goodness. What was it? 13 people just... Oh, yeah, because 10 sibling... Cross-country. Or 11. I don't remember if it was 10 or 11. 10 and he made 11. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Ooh. By this time, Israel was completely over what he considered to be his family's lifestyle 
of cult shopping. So he remained living alone in upstate New York in a tiny rundown cabin along the Canadian border and finished out his high school degree. When he turned 20, Israel decided to join the United States Army. His exes would later say they fully believed his greatest motivation for enlisting was to send a giant middle finger to his parents. Mm. It makes sense because they were very anti-government mm-hmm. and establishment. So That's one way to do it. It tracks. Regardless, Israel thrived under the intense structure of the military, but his overt weirdness and lack of pop culture knowledge made it difficult for him to make friends. He did become very close with one guy named Perkins, and the pair spent so much time together that everyone joked that they were married. On multiple occasions, they would have what Perkins said was, quote, normal army talk and discuss how to commit crimes and steal money. But then Israel started talking about his meticulous plans to kidnap people and hold them for ransom on a mass scale, and that he had no intention of actually giving anyone back. When the FBI asked Perkins if he was surprised that Israel had been arrested for exactly what he'd been talking about, Perkins just said that he was surprised Israel got caught. On one hand, Everyone who knew Israel in the army agreed that he was, quote, an awkward dude who was probably still a virgin, and that he wore dorky wire-rimmed glasses and had quite a noticeably large nose. On the other hand, Israel also stood out to everyone in his unit because of his sheer size and strength. At roughly 6 feet, 4 inches tall, and 230 pounds of solid muscle, he had the physique of a super-soldier and he made even the most grueling training exercises look easy. In one instance, he seemed completely unbothered carrying 110 pounds on a 15-mile march. So a body. Yeah. A body for 15 miles. That's insane. I don't think I could carry you, who barely weighs more than 110 pounds, across a parking lot. Honestly. Yeah, I only have experience with 30 pounds of my... Mm, The own child. Yes, across the Target parking lot. To be fair, Camden... A bit of a fat ass. (laughs) You can say it. (laughs) And every inch is lovable. Oh, 100%. So lovable. Uh, He wouldn't be him if he wasn't a chonkadonk. No. No. He was known for being able to fix anything... And he built his own elaborate ghillie suit in a matter of weeks, when the average specialist needs months to make one. He was by far the best soldier in his unit, so much so that when the FBI contacted his former CO and asked about keys, the CO assumed it was for a background check so that Israel could work for the government. They said Israel wouldn't talk much about his family, but when he had, it was only about his mom and siblings, never his father. According to one of his former COs, quote, It was never spoken, but his impression was that Keyes or his sisters were abused by their father. Mm. I mean, he made them live in a tent while he built a tiny house that's probably not much bigger than that tent, so. I'd consider that borderline abuse. Call me crazy, but yeah, yeah, that's a bit extreme. It was known that Israel was especially close with his younger sisters, who genuinely adored him, 
and by being in the military, he was trying to save money so that he could help get them away from the grueling off-the-grid lifestyle of their parents. There were two incidents, however, that Israel's CO didn't seem to know about. One night during the six-month stretch that Israel was stationed in Egypt, Israel and some other guys on his unit got a hotel room and hired a prostitute. They had all been drinking, and when she got there, Israel took her into a separate room. After around half an hour, she came rushing out of the room in a panic, and Israel was right on top of her, trying to give her money. She kicked him out of the way and left. His buddies wanted to know why she was so freaked out, but Israel just said, Well, nothing. I threw her around a little bit. Okay. Later, he would add, when he retold this story to the FBI, Quote, I wasn't going to let her run the show. There it is. Oh, yeah. A different time, he'd been about to hook up with a Norwegian exchange student when things went south. According to Israel, he, quote, lost control a little bit, but it wasn't an outright rape. Okay. We're not going to insult mm. people's intelligence by parsing down the utter insanity of that. that yeah okay oh fuck you <laughs> these two incidents were valuable learning experiences for him though and he understood that from then on if he was going to do quote that kind of stuff it just had to be on complete strangers that kind of stuff meaning rape, rape? yeah okay pretty much as soon as he joined the army israel started drinking heavily to loosen himself up Sometimes he would drink so much that he'd black out, but he still maintained his status as one of the top soldiers in his unit. I actually saw, Caitlin, that he completed with flying colors the pre-ranger fitness training. So for whatever reason, he decided not to be, but he could have been a ranger. And that is terrifying. But yeah, he just breezed through it and made it look easy. So, <laughs> yikes. Oh, God. I'm just having flashbacks to the last time I was blackout, mm -hmm. drunk the next day. I think this was in South Carolina. And we went to the beach. And I remember laying on the, f on the oh. beach on the sand and I could feel the waves. Oh, no. You could just hear the ocean and feel the ocean, oh, even gosh. though you weren't actually in it. Oh. And he's oh. over here like doing a ninja running course yeah it makes you wonder like what even more could he have done if he wasn't doing that because god oh just reading that phrase blackout drunk makes me feel gross really? don't I do literally that. smell taste what? feel the toilet Ugh. don't do it guys it's never worth it he even got engaged to his long-distance girlfriend from back in Colville. Their relationship was incredibly, quote, chaste. They had never slept together and had only kissed once when they got engaged. She wanted to wait until she got married to have sex, and Israel told her he felt the same. What she didn't know, though, was that Israel was always on the lookout for women to hook up with. Shortly after they got engaged, Israel met another beautiful woman online named Tammy, who was 10 years older than Israel and had an 8-year-old son. 
At first, Tammy wasn't very impressed with Israel's looks, but they quickly bonded over three key things. Shared childhood trauma, similar taste in movies and music, they both were really into super heavy metal and horror movies, and alcohol. From the start, they were obsessed with each other and had sex constantly. And according to Tammy, Israel Keys was the best lover she had ever had, hands down. Pause to throw up. I'm going to blame the alcohol. Yeah. Obviously, we were not there. And praise God. (laughs) Thank God. Tammy, we're glad you enjoyed yourself. Yes, yes. We'll just leave it at that. Everyone deserves to enjoy themselves, except Israel Keys. Mm -hmm. So I hope he was miserable the whole time. After eight weeks, Tammy was pregnant. Keys was still engaged to his Colville girlfriend, and at first, he broke things off with Tammy and encouraged her to get an abortion. But things with him and his Colville fiancé were getting pretty rocky. She wouldn't hear anything at all from Israel for weeks at a time, and then suddenly he wouldn't leave her alone. He told her that he'd slept with someone and that he no longer believed in God. Ultimately, Keyes broke off his engagement and returned to Tammy. He appreciated that Tammy let him do whatever he wanted, and she never questioned any of his weird explanations for why he was always coming home wasted, and she never asked him where he was disappearing off to for days at a time. He was actually extremely kind and intentional with Tammy's eight-year-old son, and the little boy adored Israel and viewed him as a father figure. At first, it seemed like they could be a happy, normal family. But Israel continued drinking even more heavily than when he and Tammy first met. And he would literally drink an entire bottle of wine, a fifth of Jim Bean, and a six-pack of beer every single night. And sometimes when he got drunk, he would say weird things to Tammy, like that he was a bad person with a black heart. Tammy found his excessive drinking really troubling, as she herself had been in and out of AA since she was a teenager. But she continued to give Israel the benefit of the doubt, even when he got a pentagram tattooed on the back of his neck and branded an upside-down cross on his own chest. She chalked it up to a delayed rebellion against his parents. Honestly, she was more bothered that when he got drunk, he would rant to Tammy and her friends in a condescending manner about politics. And he insisted on doing all of the housework himself so that he could be the one in complete control of doing it all. (laughs) A go for it, Buster. On, yep, a hands off. However, when his daughter was born, Tammy said it was like Israel's entire being shifted, and he became an incredibly attentive and adoring father. For a few months, things seemed to take a few steps in a positive direction, until they leapt way, way back. 
Tammy and Israel nearly broke up in a fight about whether or not to take their baby girl to a hospital when she had a respiratory infection. And then Tammy was diagnosed with uterine cancer and had to have a full hysterectomy. During her long, grueling recovery, she tragically fell back into opiate addiction. And Israel was, for all intents and purposes, a full-time single parent, while Tammy suffered from her addiction. In 2004, Keyes said he no longer wanted his daughter exposed to Tammy's instability, so they moved out. Several months later, he met a 41-year-old travel nurse on a dating website named Kimberly Anderson, who was living in Port Angeles. After quite a bit of drama, as in Israel continuing to sleep with Tammy, who had by now gone to rehab and gotten sober, but also continuing to date Kimberly, Kimberly eventually asked Israel if he would move with her to the next place she'd be working as a nurse, Anchorage, Alaska. Even though Tammy pled for Israel to stay and rebuild their family, he allowed Tammy full custody of their daughter, and on March 1st, 2007, he left for Alaska. But he didn't meet up with Kimberly in Anchorage right away. Over the next three months, he traveled constantly all over the West Coast and into Mexico. His journal entries from this time mention more than one surgical procedure, but he never specified what they were. And as far as we know, he never went into details about them with doctors or the FBI. On July 11, 2006, a husband and wife were out hiking on the remote Pinnacle Lake Trail in Mount Baker, Snoqualmie National Forest. And they made quick friends with a mother and daughter pair also out enjoying the clear summer day. The four hikers ate lunch together and walked along the trail quite a ways before branching off in opposite directions at a Y-shaped fork. A few hours later, the husband and wife were pleasantly surprised to see their friends from earlier a little ways up ahead on the trail. Squatting next to it like they were taking a moment to peer closely at something on the ground. Both 56-year-old Mary Cooper and her daughter, 27-year-old Susanna Stoden, were dead from a single 22 gunshot wound each to the head. There were absolutely no other signs of injury or struggle. On that day, Israel Key's cell phone pinged twice at cell towers, just a three-hour drive from the trailhead. One at 3.53 a.m., and the other at 5.54 p.m. On the night of June 3, 2011, a 20-year-old sophomore at Indiana University named Lauren Spearer went out for a night of college, partying in Bloomington, and was never seen again. Her case made national headlines, but has never been solved. Israel Keys has since been confirmed as driving through three toll booths in Indiana that very same night and one of them was just outside Bloomington. To this day, that's all anyone officially knows, but when Keyes was later shown a picture of Lauren's face, he laughed. Okay. Jeez. Hmm. That's delightful. I just want to flick him. Like a fucking skeeter on my skin. I just want to, like... Flick him with a shovel. Mm. Right upside the head. Ugh. 
Then, in June 2011, two people vanished from their house in Essex, Vermont. 55-year-old Lorraine Curier and her 49-year-old husband, Bill. That same month, Israel flew from Anchorage to Chicago and rented a car. Over five days, he stopped in three different states, one of which was Vermont. He dug up a Home Depot bucket he'd buried there two years earlier. No. Which he'd filled with zip ties, ammunition, guns and silencers, duct tape, and Drano. At around 9 p.m., a massive lightning storm broke out in Essex, and a man had just pulled into a parking spot in front of his apartment complex. As it poured rain, Israel made his way on foot towards the back of the man's car, walking along the row of other parked cars. Suddenly, the man leapt out with a newspaper over his head and dashed inside. He had beaten Israel to the door by about five seconds. Oh my god. A little after midnight, Keyes zeroed in on a simple ranch house with an attached garage. At first, his attention had been caught by the house next to it, but it lit up with sensor lights when the owner came outside to smoke a cigarette, so he wouldn't go near it. The ranch house was dark enough, though, and had a neatly maintained yard that appeared to fit his, quote, code. No dogs and no children. Yeah, fuck off, Israel Keys. You're yoinked the definite child from a river literally yeah between 14 and 18 and i'm just gonna go out on a limb and guarantee that she was way closer to 14 Mm. than 18 so shut up wearing a backpack with a pan water bottles 50 feet of coiled nylon rope duct tape latex gloves and a small propane stove Keys crept around the house until he found the phone line and cut it. Thanks to his construction experience, he knew that the one window installed air conditioning unit most likely belonged to the master bedroom. And at around 2 a.m., he tied a cloth mask just beneath his eyes and climbed through an unlocked garage window. The door to the house was deadbolted. So he quietly broke one of the door's window panes and turned the lock. Oh, no. By the light of a headlamp, Israel crept down the straight and narrow hallway of the house towards the master bedroom. Bill and Lorraine Courier woke out of a deep sleep to their wrists being cinched with zip ties and forced onto their stomachs by a large masked man with a gun towering over their bed. Israel Keyes had been inside their home for less than 10 seconds. He demanded to know where any guns and valuables were. Then he grabbed two suitcases and began stuffing them with clothes and jewelry. And Lorraine took this opportunity to fling herself off of the bed. This enraged Israel. These people were not taking him seriously, and he ground Lorraine's face into the pillow and ordered her not to try anything again. While he rifled through their drawers, he found a medal that indicated he and Bill had actually served in the same military unit, and he let Bill think that this coincidence gave him a better chance of making it through the night unharmed. He forced the couriers into their own green Saturn sedan, Lorraine in the front passenger seat and Bill in the back, and started driving. 
The couriers told Keyes if he let them go, he could have anything of theirs he wanted. They hadn't seen his face, and they'd never tell anybody. Keyes told them, not to be worried, that they were just being kidnapped for ransom, and he was taking them to a drop house. At around 4 a.m., they pulled into an abandoned, ancient two-story farmhouse along Route 15 with a for sale sign staked out front, a location that Israel had carefully selected and familiarized himself with earlier. He left Lorraine in the car and marched Bill to its pitch-black dark basement and tied him tightly to a stool. When he came back outside, he was shocked to see that Lorraine had just managed to get out of the car, and as soon as she saw Israel Keys, she broke into a run towards the highway, but he quickly overtook her and tackled her to the ground. Enraged that she had almost gotten away from him, Keyes drug her upstairs and restrained her tightly with ropes and duct tape to a filthy mattress. By this point, Bill's voice was echoing from the basement throughout the entire house, yelling as loud as he could, Where's my wife? Keyes made sure Lorraine was still tightly restrained and made his way back down to the basement. Bill had gotten partially free and was violently thrashing and was close to completely breaking free. The basement was totally dark aside from the spotlight of Keyes' headlamp. Oh, this is a, a literal nightmare. Sin- Truly terrifying. God. When he tried to reach down and retie Bill, he was nearly knocked off his feet by Bill. Yes, Bill. Get it? This enraged him even further. These people were not complying and allowing his fantasy to play out the way he needed it to happen. But he knew that he couldn't shoot Bill with his forty caliber because that would make too much noise and it was about to be dawn. The traffic highway just outside the farmhouse would be picking up. Sorry, they're not playing into your fantasy. Right. Oh my God. And it's very much that, like we talked about before, the the need for control like absolute control he spends months i mean literally years ruminating on these fantasies where like down to the t he needs it to play out a certain way and just the the fucking narcissism mm. of it all like the psychopathy of it all i uh it's Times like this where I wish I had the intelligence of a, like, very high-level psychiatrist to be able to be like, "Mm, yep, 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 (laughs) yep, yep. But all we can do is just, you know, TikTok millennial speculate. But this is just, it screams, it screams you don't have control and it pisses you off. And isn't that just basically like the story of almost every type of situation like this i mean what do you expect you kidnap a couple in the dead of the night (laughs) and they're not just going easily they're not just like oh this is fine yeah tie me up oh yeah it's a little loose like can you yeah no oh and they were so at this point they've been so close to getting away and just also it shows how fucking arrogant he and Mm -hmm. like 
and actually not that smart that he is that he doesn't take the necessary precautions to actually restrain them it's like he's meticulously thought out everything that he is going Mm -hmm. to do and he thinks that they're just going to comply with it but no because news flash the couriers were bad asses keys felt panic bubbling up inside of him and knew that he needed to regain control and fast he grabbed a shovel and smashed bill with it twice then sprinted upstairs to retrieve a 22 that he had modified with a silencer. He flew back down to the basement, where, incredibly, Bill had gotten to his feet again. Mm. Without hesitation, Keyes lifted the gun and fired into Bill's arms, head, neck, and chest. Bill Courier would not fall to the ground as he was being shot, and remained standing and looking Keyes in the face until the moment he took his last breath and slumped to the floor. I hope that Israel Keys was shitting kittens. Mm-hmm. Man. Change kittens to like bot flies. Yeah. A porcupine. Something. Something painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Back upstairs, Lorraine was still struggling as hard as she could against her tight restraints. Keys returned to the room, gagged Lorraine with paper towels and duct tape, cut off all of her clothing with a knife, and raped her twice. The second time, he choked her until she briefly lost consciousness. Once Lorraine came to, Keyes untied her and led her down to the basement. He sat her down on a bench and directed her attention to the end of the beam of his headlamp, where her husband Bill lay dead in an enormous pool of blood. He then pulled on a pair of leather batting gloves, stood behind her, and strangled Lorraine Courier to death with a rope. By this time, light was starting to break outside, and he knew he had to move fast. He poured Drano over Bill and Lorraine's hands and faces, wrapped them in 55-gallon trash bags, rolled them into a corner of the basement, and piled garbage and wood on top of their bodies then drove away. He left their green Saturn in a Rite Aid parking lot out of reach of security cameras and then left in his rental car. Bill and Lorraine Courier's bodies have never been found, and the closest anyone ever came to connecting Israel Keys to their abduction was a witness who said they had seen a white man with longish brown hair driving the Courier's car. And in case it was unclear, that account that we just gave you is directly from Israel Keys himself. So, Mm-mm. based off of everything else that we know of him up to this point, and, you know, the manner in which everything played out, law enforcement didn't have any reason not to believe him. Also, that house along Route 15 had done to it exactly what Israel Keys predicted Mm -hmm. it would have done to it, which was that it was in such a state of disrepair that even when it was purchased, it was just purchased to be demoed. So their bodies were never recovered. Yes, yes. And that any sort of 
decomposition odor that would have been coming from that basement. Again, the house was so old, they just would have assumed it was from, you know, a raccoon, you know, like something like that. And I mean, I certainly wouldn't think, oh, we're going to venture down there and investigate. No, you would just demo the house. I mean, it happens every day around here. So uh, it's, that's awful. Now, at this point, you guys are probably going, did those bitches just forget about Samantha Koenig, the young woman who vanished from the coffee stand in Alaska, who, if you remember, was presumed to be either a runaway or possibly a victim of domestic violence? Oh no, we did not. And just as a brief recap, when we last put a pin in that story, Israel Keyes had just been arrested on the side of a Texas highway after a police officer with a hunch and a vehicle description that matched the one spotted pulling cash from several ATM machines with Samantha's boyfriend's debit card had pulled Keyes over for going a two miles over the speed limit. And inside Keyes' wallet, law enforcement were astonished to find Samantha Koenig's driver's license. Now, Keyes said that someone had left a Ziploc bag on the front seat of his truck a few weeks ago, and that's what had the license, a cell phone, and that ATM card with a PIN number scratched into it. He said he'd figured it was from someone whom he'd done a construction job for, and they'd just left him the bag as payment. A law enforcement said, A fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) I added that little embellishment, but they probably (laughs) kept themselves from laughing in his face. Okay, dumbass. And yeah, and immediately extradited him to Alaska. And from the beginning, Keyes was baffling to detectives. He had no criminal record, no presence on social media, and by all accounts was a hard worker with a reputable construction business and a glowing, although brief, career in the military. His girlfriend, Kimberly, was adamant that there was no way Keyes had anything to do with Samantha's disappearance. So, what were they missing? When they asked Israel's mother, Heidi Keys, if she'd ever heard her son mention the name Samantha Koenig, she said no, but there was something weird that had happened with her son just a few weeks prior, on February 13th. Israel had come to visit Heidi with his daughter in Dallas, but the day before they were both supposed to be on a flight back to Anchorage, he'd slipped out of the house early in the morning, and left a note on his bed that said, quote, gone to fix the window, the window on the rental car, and find a place to hide my guns, quote. Now, we would be like, um, (laughs) what? But apparently Heidi was like, oh yeah, that was totally normal because we all had a shitload of guns and we're always just like putting them places. So I was like, Okay. So, yeah, that was perfectly fine. But they heard nothing from Israel Keys, and he didn't respond to their texts 
for the next two days. Finally, on the 15th, he called Heidi, asking if she could pick him up from the parking lot of a mall about an hour away. He was disheveled and incoherent and weepy, and his rental car was splattered with mud. He'd said he'd run out of gas and his credit cards were frozen, and he hadn't eaten or slept in two days. Everyone in the Keys family sensed that something was very wrong. Israel was like a superhero in their eyes. He was always incredibly calm, put together, and resourceful. He could spend hours alone in the bush without incident. So it was bizarre that he would be in the middle of suburban Texas, in the day, seemingly lost and disoriented. But detectives knew this was no coincidence. I like how up until this point, I only imagine these people with a horse and buggy. Truly, like a scene out of, what was, oh my god, what's the movie with Harrison Ford? It is not the omen. Star I'm Wars. I'm stressed. <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> no, he has a spaceship in that one. That's oh, true. no, it's Witness. It's Witness where he is a detective. Ah. And he goes and immerses himself in Amish community to help ah. solve a murder. It's a really great movie. But when he when it said um, that she went to pick him up from the mall an hour away, I was just like, yeah. can a horse and buggy... But I guess they did have a car. Yeah. That's so off base. I'm sorry. No, it, it is weird because we only think of them as being like in off a tiny cab. Yeah. Stuff. Like, yeah. But I mean, they had to get from point A to point B with all their, as he said, cult shopping. Well, they need a fucking school bus. Yeah. And they really did. It's weird when you look at the pattern of what they did because they started out fundamentalist mormons Mm -hmm. then they join the ark which is basically like an extremist fundamentalist christian group and christians and mormons will be like we are nothing Mm -hmm. alike like we fundamentally disagree on key theologies and usually you don't jump from one to the Mm -hmm. other so it's weird that they did that and then from the ark or from the Ark, it was that weird, like, militia-like church, which mm-hmm. was basically, like, super white supremacist. We want to start a race war. Um, maybe that and the Ark were one and the same. I honestly don't remember at this point. But mm. then there was them going, moving again and joining an Amish community. So they did have a horse and buggy. I mean, they would have in the Amish community. But then... They had left again and were in Texas because the Amish community was like in Vermont or somewhere or Maine, somewhere like that, because they had them, the kids harvesting sap with the Amish community. So it's just so weird that they just kind of like hop from like, I mean, he's, I hate to say it, but he's right. Like cult shopping, like which cult is the one that we're this is the one and they never really land anywhere and that's also weird because like when people are in those fundamentalist groups Mm -hmm. it's you don't just really leave them like unless 
there's something that rocks it and splits it up or you're raised in it as a child and then you're like oh this is really messed up it's just weird to like pop in and out of those extremist groups like that i don't know that is really weird the more you think about it yeah and they're very nomadic israel himself is all over the place with all his little travels like ping-ponging all over all the time it's just odd it's just so odd yeah finally at 5 48 p.m on friday march 30th after the fbi informed keys that they found incriminating information on the laptop they'd taken from his house and were rapidly accumulating even more hard evidence this was a complete lie at this point they had zero physical evidence but they were desperate to get him talking Mm. The following story began in a tiny interrogation room at the Alaska Correctional Center. Around 7 p.m. on February 1, 2012, Israel Keyes stopped in his white pickup by the Home Depot on Tudor Road across the street from the Common Grounds coffee stand, just like he'd already done several times that week to watch its comings and goings. He liked that the kiosk was open late. At five minutes to eight, just before closing, he approached the window. He sat down an empty thermos and asked the barista for an Americano. It was Samantha Koenig. They chatted while she made the coffee with her back to him, and when she turned back to the window and gave him his thermos, he pointed a gun at her. He instructed her to turn off the lights, empty the cash from the register, and kneel on the floor all of which she did without protest. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see people coming and going from the gym in the next parking lot over. He reached in the window and bound her hands with zip ties before leaping into the window. He threatened to kill her if she'd pushed the panic button, and she swore she hadn't. Keyes believed her because he was wearing a police scanner in his ear. Oh, Oh, gosh. That's so scary. He shut the window and locked it stuffed a wad of napkins into her mouth, and told her that they were going for a walk. Keyes continued to describe exactly what detectives had already watched over and over on the surveillance footage. Samantha breaking away and running, Keyes tackling her, and the two of them walking out of range of the camera towards his truck in an IHOP parking lot. Keyes' version also filled in the gaps that the poor quality surveillance footage failed to make obvious. Like when he tackled Samantha after she ran, he pressed the gun into her ribs and threatened to kill her if she ran again. He then ordered her to lean against him and stumble a little like she was drunk. When they got to his truck, There was a group of people standing around a truck parked right in front of his. Keyes moved Samantha to the passenger door and opened it like he was being nice and told her, quote, I don't want to hurt you, but this twenty-two is loaded with very quiet ammo. It will kill you, so don't make me do it. Samantha believed him and said nothing. Oh my gosh. Okay. Caitlin, I feel like we, I just have to say this because this is my 
everything that I have watched and read and listened to being a true crime Mm -hmm. junkie and now being a mom, it's very hard to say this in a way that people are not going to come at us for saying that we're trying to victim blame Mm -hmm. because that is not at all what I am doing because Samantha Koenig did absolutely nothing wrong. She is the Mm -mm. victim, the end, period, end of story. But I think that it is pertinent in this type of situation when talking about it Mm -hmm. to bring up the really great advice of the great Paul Holes, who anybody that's in true crime will know who that is. But he in Michelle McNamara's really amazing book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, talks about that he, as a former law enforcement official who has been a part of so many investigations and now like offers his expertise to podcast journalists, like, I mean, he's Mm -hmm. one of the best of the best in the psychology of predators dealing with these types of situations. He says that he has always told his own daughters I do not care what they say to you. I do not care if the gun is in your face. You scream, you run, you make a scene, you fake a violent seizure, you bark, you, you bark, you piss yourself, you bite bite them you do like anything to prevent going to a secondary location. Yes. And that they very well may not be lying and they very well may shoot you. However, your chances of surviving that gunshot wound are infinitely higher than if you then comply Mm -hmm. with going behind a closed door, getting in a vehicle, driving away. Again, a victim is never at fault for anything that happens to them, but... When we look at these types of stories, empowering ourselves with proactive techniques, Mm -hmm. with repeating over and over and over to yourself, God forbid, if I or someone I love is in this situation, I want it ingrained in every fiber of my being to not comply. Like, I think it's something that we we need to talk about we need to talk about it all the time we need to scream it we need to tell young men young women oh it doesn't matter what age you are you do not comply you do not comply and what people can come at me whatever I don't care but I completely agree with you it's uh it just because it's not victim blaming it's no taking action and you're spreading good information to people yeah and and she even even samantha she did she She ran ran. like yeah she ran and israel keys was a scary fucking motherfucker with a gun look i i agree with everything that you just said i could find myself in this exact situation Mm -hmm. and freeze up yeah i have no clue how i'm gonna act and she very well could have looked in the mirror every single day and said exactly what we are saying and then when again when you're in that situation yeah it's easy easy to say it but the day that you get kidnapped Mm -hmm. 
it's not the day you expect it right sometimes your body takes over you don't know how you're gonna respond but the more i did fight she did and had she not run away had she not like she was trying to survive Mm -hmm. the best way she could yeah and i do believe that ultimately the steps that she took Mm -hmm. you know the evidence that was on those surveillance cameras all of those little things matter so much in building a case against these pieces of shit so it's just i you wish that you could just go back and fix everything mm-hmm. yeah this hot side view sucks dick yes but knowing what we know i oh man anyways i'm not i'm no i'm preaching to the choir here but it's just something that i have to remind myself of mm-hmm. over and over N- complying is almost never a good thing Once they were in the car, Keyes reassured Samantha that this was all just a kidnapping for ransom and she would be fine. After a few minutes, he had to stop at a red light. A police car pulled up right alongside them and Keyes felt panic. His truck did not have automatic locks and he hoped Samantha didn't realize her car seat buckle was broken. All she would have to do was make a quick move or even scream and bang her head against the window, and it could have all been over. Samantha's eyes were wide, and Keys could see her silently weighing her options, deciding whether or not she could believe him, and if an escape attempt was worth the risk of his promise to shoot her. The light turned green, and the police taillights faded away into the night. Suddenly, Keyes realized he'd made several big mistakes. He needed a phone to make the ransom call, and he'd left the kiosk door unlocked. He needed to go back and lock it to make it look like Samantha had locked up and left on her own. So, they drove back to common grounds. Keys made Samantha lie down across the back seat beneath a pile of drop cloths and went back inside the kiosk. If the ACC had watched the Common Ground surveillance tape all the way through, they would have seen Israel Keys return there alone, not once, but twice, to retrieve Samantha's cell phone, her keys, and clean up evidence. There would have been no question that she had been abducted. Instead, they learned this information for the first time from Keyes himself in an interrogation room weeks later. Once he had Samantha's cell phone, Keyes texted her boyfriend, Dwayne, and her boss at Common Grounds, making it sound like she was pissed off and was getting out of town for a couple of days to blow off some steam. Finally, at around midnight, Keyes pulled into the driveway of the house he shared with Kimberly and his daughter, who were both inside. Kimberly was still awake, but like Tammy, she pretty much kept to herself about his comings and goings, and most importantly, never went poking around the workshed that Keyes would often be out working in with power tools, smoking cigars, and blasting heavy metal late into the night. Oh my. I'm one nosy bitch because- I would be like, what you doing out here? Like- Also, turn that fucking heavy metal off. (laughs) 
Yes. No shade to people. You can like what you like, but nothing puts me in a foul mood more than just hearing like, God, God, I hate it so much. Uh, Maybe I would stay away. (laughs) Power tools and heavy metal. She had no idea that inside the shed keys already had two heaters going and a 9 by 12 tarp laid out on the floor. He tied Samantha up inside the shed with a piece of rope tightly screwed into either side of the wall across her neck, left heavy metal blasting out of a portable radio so that any sound she made would be lost, and left for another couple of hours, during which he would be caught by Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, rifling through their shared truck in her own father's driveway and make a run for it when Dwayne went back inside. He'd had so many close calls that night that it was astonishing he still hadn't been caught. In the book I read, it said something like it was between 13 and 16 incidents over the course of the three hours between when he abducted her and then finally had her back in the shed and then left again to go do more shenanigans that they were seen by multiple people and were in public like the police the truck at home depot there was apparently a car idling in the common grounds kiosk parking lot as he had the gun pointed in the window like somebody was deciding whether or not they were going to get out and they just drove away so he just got fucking lucky to the point that it was stupid and he was everybody and everything we've read has been like he was incredibly meticulous he was so planned out this instance he went was completely off the rails all over the very place very rogue what, like a hundred percent like having to go back to get the stuff because he forgot things the first time at the kiosk he apparently ran out of gas while they were driving around and he just straight got gas with her in the car and again nothing happened they stopped at a abandoned like community baseball park when she said she had to go to the bathroom and he just like took her out and let her pee and there were people like standing in the parking lot and smoking so you're just like what was going through his mind like it seems as though well I mean on the other hand I don't know if this is me playing devil's advocate but she was compliant yeah she did yeah let him have the control yeah so he was just like, oh, I'm good. Like, I can do all this yeah. stuff and she's not. That would make a lot of sense. And maybe it was just part of the game for him. Like, he Ugh. was enjoying, I could do whatever I want and she's not going to do anything. Because he is so arrogant and he thinks he's above being caught. And that's how these motherfuckers get caught. is because they get lazy and they think it's they're true. arrogant. It's true. So... Uh, I would love to know my blood pressure right now. (laughs) Hi. I'm so stressed. On a scale of one to high. (laughs) Hi. Astronomical. Yes. Zero to NASA. Yes. (laughs) 
At around 3 a.m., Keyes returned to his house, poured himself a glass of wine, and went back out to the shed. The heaters had driven the temperature to a stifling 90 degrees, and heavy metal was still screaming out of the radio. Keyes briefly untied Samantha's neck and let her have a drink of water. Samantha asked Keyes if he'd gotten a hold of her dad, and he told her that he had and everything was fine. He then retied Samantha even more elaborately and securely than before, and she knew then that he had no intention of letting her go. Sorry guys, this next part gets pretty graphic, so skip ahead 30 seconds to a minute if you need to. Israel Keyes then removed all of his own clothing and raped Samantha Koenig twice while heavy metal reverberated throughout the sweltering shed. Then he stood over her, put on a pair of leather batting gloves, strangled her with a rope, and stabbed her in the back below her left shoulder blade. According to Israel Keyes later, Samantha never made a sound. His only thought was that he, quote, still needed to take a shower before he and his daughter were supposed to be leaving in one hour to get on a flight for a cruise. Once Samantha was dead, he returned into the house and woke up his daughter, and while she was eating her breakfast and getting ready, he returned to the shed, rolled up Samantha's body in a tarp, and stuffed her into some lower cabinets, turned off the radio and space heaters, and went on a cruise. When they returned nearly three weeks later, on February 22nd, Keyes waited until he'd made his daughter dinner and put her to bed. Then he returned to the shed, pulled Samantha's body back out from the cabinets, and sexually assaulted her. The next day, he took his daughter to Target, and while they were there, he bought a Polaroid camera. Now, if you guys remember from part one, in a week's time, a Ziploc bag with a ransom note and pictures of Samantha next to a current newspaper, with her hair braided and her eyes wide open, would turn up at a nearby park. When these photos were taken, Samantha Koenig had already been dead for 21 days. You can easily find these photos online, guys. Be very careful if you Google stuff about this case and her name because you can find them. And unfortunately, Caitlin and I both have seen them on accident before we even started this podcast. Just, I don't know, dicking around on Reddit and... I would really, really caution you not to do it if you're somebody that images of things bother you because I wish that I hadn't seen it. It's not even that. It's like I feel dirty seeing it. Yeah. Like it it just feels like. It's so disrespectful to her and her family. A hundred percent. And it's now been so enmeshed into the internet that it won't ever go away Mm -hmm. so I just I hate that so so much so yeah I do not recommend 
putting that image in your brain. But according to Israel Keys, he basically used a ton of his girlfriend's own makeup to try and I don't even know doctor her up yes um he used very crude methods of essentially plastic surgery to try to lift her face and hold her eyes open so that she appeared to be fine when she like we said had been dead for many days at that point so just the bizarreness of him being able to do that and then oh I'm going to take my daughter to Target, who you know was excited to go to Target, and then I'm buying a Polaroid camera to take pictures of the body in my shed. I, That's so fucked it's up. It's so fucked up that it seems like a bad movie. It really... But no, this is a real person <laughs> yeah. that has a thought process like this. And how... <laughs> And Kimberly was just either working as a nurse or she, I guess when all this was going on, apparently she was like on a girl's trip that overlapped Israel Keys's trip. I don't know. It's a little unclear if she was on vacation with them or not. But needless to say, she yeah, didn't venture into the shed. No. And she, I fully believe, genuinely had no yeah. clue what he was up to. On Wednesday, May 23rd, 2012, the following audio was recorded in a packed federal courtroom during a hearing for Israel Keys, who was demanding to be given the death penalty without trial in exchange for confessions that might lead to the recovery of many of his victims' remains. It's uh, filed shortly after the court issued the order in this matter setting today's hearing. Our position is that at this particular juncture, we're not. What you just heard was the moment when Keyes, after being led into the room surrounded by FBI and U.S. Marshals and shackled at his wrists and ankles, sprung from his chair completely free and launched himself over the gallery's railing, leaping from chair to chair to chair, and literally dragging the guard who first tried to grab him, throwing the entire courtroom into chaos. It took two detectives and three guards with a taser to bring him down. Apparently, Keyes had been whittling the pencils given to him at the Alaska Correctional Center down to fine points with his teeth. Ah, a gopher. A feral gopher. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, One with rabies. Uh, and had used them to pick the locks on his cuffs and ankle restraints. He'd also been taking little pieces of the cellophane wrapper from around his prison-issued sandwich and tying them together to make a cord for his ankle restraints so that it looked like his legs were still shackled together. In the three hours it took to transport him from ACC to the court hearing, he'd unfastened both without detection. 
Law enforcement would later recall that Keyes' eyes were wide open with ecstasy during his brief moment of terror he'd created. Thank God every day I was not in that courtroom. I hope that he shit himself and had to sit in it the rest of the day when he got tased. Yes. Open sores and all. (laughs) Hemorrhoids and all. (laughs) I hope he already had hemorrhoids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After this, Keyes was told he would be in a double leg irons from here on out. He joked that was fine. That just meant he'd need six hours to get them open instead of three. By this point, it had taken the FBI months to realize that Keyes was far more interested in manipulating and frustrating them than actually giving them confessions. Even in death, he said he considered his victims as belonging to him. God, please shut up. He does this so much in the unfortunate hours of interrogation stuff that I watched, where a lot of it is literally just him being like, well, I'll give you the blow by blow, blah, 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 blah. I'll, I'll do this, I'll give you that. And he's just like talking in circles, not actually giving them any information. And it is so annoying that's so oh. frustrating and he to even like get them to talk mm-hmm. to him or to even get himself to sit in the room with them he would demand a starbucks and a snickers bar and the cigars that he liked to smoke and so they would bring him this shit and he would just run his mouth while they sat there waiting for him to give them some sort of like real information and Oh my god, I can't even imagine how frustrating that would have been. And the book even described that one of the detectives was pretty bad at maintaining a poker face with Mm -hmm. Israel Keys because he was so fucking annoying. And that he would just like grip the edges of the table and even on the surveillance video you could see his knuckles are like white. (laughs) You'd be like, let me at him. Let me at him. Uh, and I do not blame him one bit. No. I I mean, I hope every single one of them was on good blood pressure medication because <laughs> God. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the arrogance of this piece of shit. I mean, yeah. As you can probably imagine, the ACC was incredibly ill-equipped for an inmate as dangerous as Israel Keys. Even at the imploring of the detectives logging hours with him in the interrogation room, learning firsthand the dangerous unpredictability he possessed. Keyes was allowed to have books, internet access, pencils, regular tennis shoes with laces, and most appalling of all, disposable razors to shave with. Even after a sign was printed out that said in huge black letters, do not give this man a razor blade. Keyes was somehow still allowed to shave with a disposable razor. So I guess they were hiring illiterate COs. <laughs> like... At uh, what? Even if he wasn't dangerous... I wouldn't give somebody who I just caged uh, a razor. Yeah, who was... Like, like you, known... you saw what he did with a pencil with his yeah, teeth. Yeah, yeah. That... From then on out, it should have been not even a question 
do not give this bitch anything that he could remotely use to do anything sketchy with. He probably could have taken the pages from the book and made like a machete with it. Oh, doesn't that happen in... I know it's just a show, but people do the same crazy shit in real life in prison. But I think in Orange is the New Black, somebody actually uses pages from a magazine to make like a makeshift uh sharp thing like to like shank. yeah to like tear at their own skin with to induce bleeding i could be remembering that wrong but but paper can be sharp bro paper cut yeah ah oh literally anything that seems so inconsequential like the cellophane wrapper something so flimsy but he used it to make it appear that his ankle was like secure that is he literally escaped from his shackles ah, and did a cartoon lily pad chair hell no no hell no no that audio <laughs> that scared me. Is scary. <laughs> and it's just because you hear a collective moment of sheer fucking panic mm-hmm. and chaos. Because you think oh. once somebody like that is subdued in a room and they're not doing anything, that they're not dangerous. Mm. Surprise, shoddy. <laughs> Surprise, bitch. Oh my gosh. <sighs> yeah. One officer even recalled a harrowing incident where he entered Key's cell alone to perform a routine strip search on him. And when the cell door locked behind them, the CO... <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, God. I'm so uncomfortable. The CO was supposed to remain firmly positioned immediately outside, just wandered off down the hall. Oh, my God. oh my god and then the detective had to go back to the window and be like hey get back here here," while not acting like he was shitting bricks oh my gosh (sighs) i'd rather be in a cage with a gorilla honestly i'd take my chances like that's just quick yeah like you know what's gonna happen it's like the unknowing just like he's like it's like being in a cage with a predator that you're just like not sure of their next move. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that. Ugh. When Keyes confessed several months prior in horrifying detail to the murder of Samantha Koenig, an FBI diving team recovered her dismembered remains from the bottom of Lake Matanuska, a popular local ice fishing spot. When the team had first arrived in Anchorage, they noticed a giant sign at the coffee kiosk saying the city was praying for Samantha's safe return. And less than two days later, the sign had changed to our warmest condolences to the Koenig family. Over the course of three days, Keyes had made three separate trips to sink Samantha's arms, legs, head, and torso, weighted down with anchors, through a small ice fishing hole cut straight down into three feet of solid ice. One of those days, he left the lake and drove straight to his daughter's school for a meeting with her teacher about enrolling her in the school's gifted and talented program. And people at his daughter's school found him to be, quote, 
adorable with her. Throughout the many sessions Keyes had with interrogators, he was adamant that he never wanted his daughter to know about his crimes. Then you shouldn't have been criming. Uh, fuck off. Yeah. Your daughter, I hope she knows what a piece of shit you are. Yeah, and is somehow doing amazing and has an amazing support yes, system I truly wish and a beautiful best. life. Nothing but the best for her. Yeah, but holy shit. No, you don't get to dictate that. And if you are worried about her finding out who you are, then I don't you know. You dismembered yeah. a girl. Yeah. You dismembered somebody's daughter. It- so you don't get to decide what happens with your daughter yeah. in the sense of what she hears about you and what she doesn't. Like, ah. Uh, Rotten hell. Yeah. And his daughter, a hundred percent, is just, I mean, she is a victim of oh, all of this. Gosh, I can't like, even imagine what that poor girl went through in the yeah, aftermath. Yeah. I, yeah. Just much love and light to her is all I have to say. On December 1st, 2012, at 5.30 a.m., a guard at the ACC performed a final security check on Israel Keyes' cell, like he did every night, and said that he noticed nothing out of the ordinary. Keyes was rolled up in his blankets on his cot like he did every night, with no parts of his body showing. At 5.57 a.m., a different guard, on a security check, peered into the cell to see a large pool of blood seeping through Israel's blankets and onto the floor. He yelled out to Keyes, but it was far too late. Keyes had already been dead for three to four hours. He had taken a razor blade, embedded it into a pencil, and used it to slash his left wrist. He had also tied a bedsheet around his neck and tied it to his left foot as insurance that he would certainly die from one or the other. He'd also left a multi-page suicide note full of rambling narcissistic drivel that forensic psychiatrists believed was him trying to equate himself to the Silence of the Lambs movie and a lot of anti-American ramblings such as, quote, land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanized. Sh- shut the fuck up, Israel Keys. In his last interview with law enforcement, three days before his suicide, Keyes had been openly disgusted with investigators and said that the only thing he was sorry for was that he had told them about his murder of the couriers and that he didn't get to murder more people. He was extremely disappointed to have been caught, he told detectives, because his next plan had been to leave Alaska and become an itinerant carpenter. He believed there was no better cover for traveling often and extensively than someone whose work was at the mercy of extreme weather disasters. 
who would ever question the death of someone who never turned back up after a horrible weather incident where multiple people were already missing, like a hurricane or a flood or tornado? In addition to the suicide note, Keyes also left 12 crude skulls drawn in blood on the wall of his cell, with the words, we are one written underneath. Oh my, sh- again, please shut the fuck up. Like, that is just, <laughs> what in the criminal minds? Okay, but they're literally, I just uh. watched an episode where this guy did mercy kills uh. for drug addicts, and he tattooed wings on his back. Oh. with their initials and like they are one you 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 also i it strikes me as him doing this because he's trying to be like oh so cool and angsty but like he had never had an original thought in the world and this was 2000 and whatever oh. it was so all of this shit had been on svu a thousand times right. was already in all the movies it's just him trying to you are nothing yeah you are not an innovative Special. Hannibal Lecter, sir. Now, I will say, though, that the itinerant carpenter plan, that is scary as shit. The knowing that somewhere where there was a disaster, like think about when Hurricane Katrina happened and there were just... It was just pure chaos. Basically, the grid's down. You don't have service. You don't have electricity. You don't know what's going on. You don't know where your loved ones are. Praying on the vulnerable. Like, praying on anybody, but... Yeah. There's something so sickening about that. Yeah. Taking advantage of an already vulnerable mass situation is... That's just another level of sinister. Ugh. Uh, yeah. Glad he never got to do that. Yep. Detectives believe 11 of those skulls indicated victims, and the 12th belonged to Keyes himself. Detectives who spent hours sitting with Keyes are pretty split on his actual number of victims. Some believe it was only 11 while others are just as adamant that the number was likely far, far higher. Unfortunately, we will never know. After the FBI made information about Israel Keyes public, reported encounters with a man that people were convinced was Israel Keyes flooded in from all over the United States. A woman in Texas believes she was followed by Keyes while driving. Another woman was convinced that Keyes followed her for miles and then made an attempt to abduct her on a deserted stretch of highway in Port Angeles in 2001. And he would have been in that area at that time. Oh, God. So it probably was him. Oh, gosh. Or some other psycho. Yeah, which is just as scary. In most of these cases, it's impossible to rule him out entirely. In the years since his death, And as true crime has taken the world by storm, Israel Keyes' name comes up often in cold case speculation where victims seem to vanish into thin air. Around a month after Keyes' suicide, 
his ex-girlfriend Tammy came forward and told police that she'd suddenly realized her neighbor's husband had gone missing while he was out on a hike. Whole that actually just gave me a chill. Yeah. No. Mm. Later, his body was found and his death ruled as accidental. But in the same 24 hours, his disappearance happened. She hadn't seen or heard from Keys for an entire day or night. That motherfucker did it. He did it. I'm gonna... I don't want to give him, like, another point. Oh, yeah. But... I would not be surprised if that was another victim. Yeah. And, guys, we... For the sake of we will be here forever, we did not even cover every possible uh-uh. victim of Israel Keys, but all you have to do is Google them or watch. I mean, there's like 10 part docu-series out there on the amount of people that really would make sense if it was Israel Keys that abducted them and it's absolutely fucking terrifying. And people also think that Maura Murray could have been a possible victim of his. Hmm. Some people very strongly think that she was not, but the way that she vanished very much fits his MO. Yeah. So again, we will never know. It's just one of those things where uh. he I hate to say it, but he kind of became what he wanted people to see him as which is this like silent predator in the shadows that could be there at any given time so we associate his name with a lot of these well it could have been him Mm -hmm. and i think that that's exactly what he would have wanted well fuck you yeah (laughs) seriously fuck you but of course we're gonna do that because we want an answer and if it makes sense then we're gonna speculate but ugh. what do you think do you think that he had just the 11 victims or do you think that the number was higher i think it was higher i i I just with all his unaccounted time and Mm -hmm. his escalation from the women in Egypt and the Norwegian mm-hmm. exchange student. Like, oh, yeah. His attacks on them. Mm-hmm. But not even that, actually. Just him and the girl he yoinked from the river. Oh, yeah. And his... Like, I feel like that was the only victim he mm-hmm. truly ever let go. Like, because he said he regretted it. Yeah. His only regret. And I don't feel like mm-hmm. he ever encountered someone that he did not mm. complete his goal with. Yeah. When he decided that they weren't going to live, they never talked him out of it or... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. And he's just so all over the board with how Mm -hmm. he kills, when he kills. Oh, yeah. Like, where... Like, Mm -hmm. he he didn't need anything but his own sense of control. Yeah. And that could be played out in, like, five minutes, Mm -hmm. five days. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter. Yeah. We also didn't even really go into this we alluded to the fact that he had several surgical procedures Mm -hmm. performed it was confirmed by prison 
doctor that one of those procedures was that he had a GI band put around his stomach so that he could go for 24 at most like 48 hours at a time without feeling like the strong effects of not eating but that was not the only procedure that he had done so people like to speculate what could he possibly have had done some people think he was having his dental records altered you know like maybe getting his teeth filed somebody else I saw said maybe he got finger prints uh, removed another person speculated that there are surgeries you can have where you actually get a gland like removed that if you sweat profusely um, to basically like cause him to not leave body fluid at a scene or like not have a tell you know that he was anxious because he was sweating other people like maybe he was getting laser hair removal Mm. which that would make a lot of sense to me the forensic countermeasure yes because he was weird about leaving dna places we will never know but he got a bbl yeah a what (laughs) brazilian butt lift (laughs) Oh my god i mean you never it's know up for speculation it's we have to leave everything on the table gosh but yeah that's just he was very much obsessed with being like the perfect i don't even know well, what he should have given himself up to the cia and been an <laughs> experiment Ugh. yeah i don't know but a hundred percent he he offed Tammy's neighbor's husband. I believe that in my mm-hmm. heart of hearts. Hail. Ooh. The Anchorage Correctional Complex and the Alaska Department of Corrections, which were both widely known for its extreme levels of corruption, held a closed hearing regarding the spectacular failings which allowed Keys to be given a razor blade in his cell. And the most they ever said in regards to who was responsible said, quote, one or more people who we do not know and they were never named, moved him out of his suicide cell and gave him a razor. So they're just like, we do not recall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's basically what they said. If you think we are exaggerating these accusations of corruption in the Alaska prison system, in 2016, state attorneys were caught advising the ACC not to document causes or circumstances of inmates' deaths in their records. Just say they died. Just file that under whoopsie. No shit they died. How? You still need to put a cause. Yeah. That is ludicrous. Yikes. This is 2016, not like 1916. Man, the justice system is Ah. fucked. And in 2018, the Anchorage Daily News reported that the ACC was secretly wiring the visitation room that Keyes was speaking to his attorneys in and illegally recording private attorney-client conversations. 
So, so, probably so much of this shit, if it had come out, if Keys had gone to trial. Yeah, it would have been thrown out. Yeah, because at every turn they were doing sketchy stuff. Not the FBI, but the ACC. But to play devil's advocate, I'd want to wiretap his secret meanings too. Because <laughs> you're already corrupt at this point. Like, I mean, you may as well find out what the most creepy person to come through there in a decade had to say. I mean, they were like, well, we may as well. Uh, everything we know about what happened in Key's death was obtained via FOIA request from the Department of Corrections. As one final clue in a cell, in addition to the skulls drawn in blood, Keyes had written one single word, Belize. So, guess there's bodies in Belize, which will never, ever be found, because he may as well said they're at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, like, again, if you're speculating, if he did more, just mm-hmm. his time in the military and being overseas, what did he do yeah. abroad? Yeah, I think he was in Egypt for six months. So if he wasn't up to some shit over there, I would be shocked. It's interesting to me to talk about the number of victims that he had or didn't have mm-hmm. because people get very passionate one way or the other about it and I think people get fixated on no he only had the 11 because they don't like to think that he very well could have had far more and I tend to be in the camp that he did have more Mm -hmm. than 11 and my reason for that is because there are times throughout his like interrogations that he alludes to not believing that people in other countries air quotes counted so he says something about makes a joke about like canadians air quotes not counting he spent an extra lots of time in Mexico and mm-hmm, and yep was raised with extremely racist I mean horrible horrible beliefs those Ugh. whether or not you say that you walk away from them you always have to be like pushing back against like deep indoctrination yeah, from your childhood there. yes and I don't think that he left it behind that hard. I fully could be convinced that he was referring to those 11 victims as people that he considered to be worth, I'm sorry to be gross, but like worth acquiring and like worth being a part of himself because they were they ticked all of the boxes that he had been indoctrinated to believe made that person someone of worth, basically being a white person. So, I don't know. 
you will not convince me that he did not have more victims solely because of the fact that I do not believe he regarded people of other races as actual human beings. And so why would he bother to do that? But also, I'll play devil's advocate with myself. Tammy Mm -hmm. was, is a woman of color. She's, uh, I... I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I cannot remember what tribe she was a part mm-hmm. of, but she lived on reservation huh. next to the military base. And according to her, Keyes never gave any indication of his white supremacist background, nor did she feel discriminated against by him. That doesn't mean that he still masked well, that I side mean- of himself. And he had a kid with her. Yeah. But But I I still agree with mm -hmm. you. Like, Because you could make the same argument that like, well, if he was so kind and loving to his daughter, then why was he so sadistic and violent to other young women? You know, it's that same like logic (sighs) that you could use in a racism sense. I, I don't know. Just something else to think about and something else that we will really never have answers on because not only, yeah. And not only is he dead, I don't think he was going to actually give information. I think he just wanted to get off on. It was again, like you said, another game. Yeah. Yep. And there's something like 45,000 pages of notes and files that have not been released to the public regarding things that they know about him and talked about with him and connections that he had to possible terrorist things, the Oklahoma City bombing. He was very close friends with people that committed like horrible atrocities that were also very tight with Timothy McVeigh. There's a lot of weird, we don't actually know what else he could have been involved in speculation. But again, all of that is just speculation. And therefore, I won't give it another second of thought. Yes. Yep, he is dead. The world does not have to worry about him anymore. But the type of killer that he is, is well worth trying to understand and like FBI profilers have a lot more work cut out for them in adapting to the modern age uh, and how serial killers move and think and it's just a lot and we'll we will continue to sit here with our falcon's eye view yes but we are not experts and will never be and we are incredibly grateful for the people that ultimately brought him down mm-hmm. so thank god for two miles thank god <laughs> for two miles yes yep oh god but that's it that's it that was israel keys we're sorry (laughs) 
<laughs> we are very sorry. Thank you for bearing with us. Yes. And before we close out, we are going to tell you guys that you need to make sure you tune in. I don't know if we'll release it next week or the week after, but we're going to be doing a special crossover episode with our friends, the Mostly Horror Podcast, who are part of the Morbid Podcast Network, Steve and Sean. We're going to be talking about Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, and they are going to be joining our conversation with their own expertise in the horror genre specifically in regards to vampires and we got some fun q a's and we're hoping to learn some stuff about vampire horror and lore that we didn't before and we're gonna tell them some stuff that we think is even more scary than horror movies about richard chase yay (laughs) yay so it should be a really fun gross awful time (laughs) we're looking forward to talking with them oh gosh anything else caitlin no no we're at two hours so all right well in the meantime you guys know where to follow us tiktok and instagram at camping is canceled send us a gmail to camping is canceled at gmail.com and we will catch you guys back next week bye Bye.